Okay, welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 147 with my guest, John Beck. Mr. Beck was the percussion instructor at the Eastman School of Music for nearly 50 years and built a program that has influenced the direction of uh, the percussion world in a myriad of ways. Um, He also taught um, famous drummers like Steve Gadd uh, and none other than So Percussion's own Jason Truding. Uh, I had never spoken with Mr. Beck prior to this podcast at any length, just maybe a hello at PASIC. Um, but man, I really enjoyed talking with him. So I hope you enjoy this conversation too. He's a wealth of knowledge and just a sweet, sweet man. So enjoy this podcast. This is Mr. John Beck. Take care. All right. Well, I'm recording on my end. Um, let me just close something out here. Do you prefer Mr. Beck or John Beck? What do you prefer me to call you? Well, if you can call me JB, that's what most people call me, JB, right. John Beck. Well, I never, studied, I never studied with you, so um, and I don't believe we've, we've maybe met in person only but once, so I just I didn't want to proceed with familiarity that I didn't quite have just yet. So, um, okay. Well, uh, John Beck or, or, or JB, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to do this with me today. Um, you know, we've, I've known of you since, uh, well, most, most, uh, sort of on, in, on the front of my brain, I've known of you since I joined. So because of Jason Truding and, uh, Jason telling me about studying with you in the Eastman school of music and then learning more about sort of, um, the history of folks who have come through there, through that program and worked with you. Um, and then I, th- I saw you at a PASIC retirement party. Oh, can you hear me okay still? Yep. Oh, yep. there you are. Yep. I, I saw that there was a PASIC retirement party, and uh, you are you were asked to give a sort of keynote speech, and you said something along the lines. The thing that stuck with me was um, some of you have said that it wasn't always very exciting to study with me, but you all weren't all that inspirational all the time either. <laughs> and... It, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, of course, but it it struck it hit me in that moment of like, of course, this is a person who's been teaching for you know fifty years or something, and of course, I've only taught for fifteen, and not every lesson is the most exciting thing I've ever sat in on. So, um, all of that said, I just kind of wanted to get to know a little bit more about you as a person, as a teacher, as a player, and sort of get to know a little bit more about what got you into um doing what you're, what you did for your entire career, um, and are still doing to some extent. Um, would you mind just sort of starting from the beginning and tell me a little bit what got you into music as a kid? Well, my, uh, my entrance into the music business, percussion business, drum business was unusual. I'm from a small town in Pennsylvania called Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. The, uh, the only notoriety that town has is its Bucknell University, mm-hmm. one end of the town, and the Eastern Federal Penitentiary at the other end of the town. So, but in the town, there was a fire company and they had a fife and drum corps. And my inspiration came from the fife and drum corps. And uh, my best friend's father played snare drum in that little fife and drum corps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, 
down the street from where I lived was another snare drummer who played in that Fife and Drum Corps. So at 10 years old, I said I wanted to play a drum. Mm. So I took lessons from the gentleman down the street. His name was Oscar Angstead, and he painted houses. That was his, his job in the world. He mm. was a house painter. He was a good drummer, mm -hmm. not a skilled drummer, but he knew how to play what they needed to play in the Fife and Drum Corps. So he said, okay, John, I'll give you lessons. No, sorry to interrupt. So, so you're, you're 10 years old. And just if you don't mind me asking, what year is this? I mean, you don't look a day over oh. 27, but I just wanted to, I just well, wanted to be clear here. <laughs> well, let's see. I'm, I'm 87 now. Uh -huh. that, that had to be, um, I was born in 33. So that had to be 43. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of a, I've been, uh, 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 I am not a historian, but I, I'm I'm fascinated by the history around World War II. And um, you know, one of my regrets growing up was I didn't ask my grandfather more questions about you know that just that time. I was young enough not to even know that history was a thing <laughs> that mattered. Um, and I now, as a 40 year old person, am am I'm really regretting that I didn't speak to my grandfather about what it was like to be alive during that time. But anyway, so it's just, it's interesting to me to know that, you know, 1943 world war two is like in full swing and the U S is in the war and you are in Lewisburg deciding that you wanted to play snare drum, you know, just to put all of this that's, in some larger con context, you know, that's true. And yes, I actually remember, Josh, I remember when the Second World War started. Mm. I was at my aunt's house and we heard on the radio, uh, let's see, the, the, the president at the, the, the time, Roosevelt, said, uh, we are at war. And I remember that statement very vividly. Wow. But did the war mean much to me at 10 years old, eight years? No, not, not a whole lot. But yes, that's that's when I came from. I was born in 1933. So in 43, I picked up a pair of drumsticks mm. and went down the street to my neighbor's house. And he gave me a lesson. My first lesson was how to hold the drumsticks. Mm -hmm. The second lesson was how to put a skinhead on to a flesh hoop. So in case your drum had broke, if you didn't know how to put a skin head back on that snare drum, what good is it if you had a pair of drumsticks? Mm. You couldn't play it anyway. So one lesson was how to hold the sticks. Second lesson was how to put a skin head on a flesh hoop. And the third lesson was how to read music. Pardon my ignorance, but were, were, were plastic, when, when was the sort of advent of the plastic drum head? I mean, I imagine ca uh, calf heads were pretty ubiquitous in 1943 compared to plastic heads. Am I right in that? Yeah, uh, I think plastic heads came in in the 50s. Oh, wow. Sometime okay. in, in the 1950s. I don't know exact, the exact date, but I do remember plastic heads being invented mm. and tried. And... Um, Sure, you can imagine when, if I was out playing a parade mm -hmm. and it was raining, uh, the skinhead sort of turned into like a wet newspaper. Right. And I didn't even go through a swimming pool and come out the other end and the plastic head was still sounding pretty darn good. Right, right. That was, that was the time. So this gentleman gave me 
13 lessons. And then he said, John, I don't know anymore. You have to go find another teacher. I said, okay. And I found another teacher in, in my hometown in Lewisburg. And the teachers had a sign outside his house that said, tap dancing lessons and drum lessons. Because tap dancing and drumming, you know, Buddy Rich, Steve Gadd, they all know how to tap dance and play drum. And, and so I took a lesson from this gentleman. But after one or two lessons, something inside me said, hey, this guy knows how to tap dance better than he knows how to play the snare drum. <laughs> so I decided that I would tell a little white lie. And I told the gentleman that I could not take any lessons with him anymore because I had a paper route and it interfered with my taking lessons. So <laughs> that was the second teacher. The third teacher was a gentleman in a town called in Milton, Pennsylvania. And, uh, he was a band director, but during his college days, he took some drum lessons. So he knew what the National Association of Rudimental Drummers was all about. So he could teach me rudiments. So I took lessons from him for maybe one year. And then I, he said to me, John, you need to get a real teacher. I'm not a, he was a trumpet player, please. So then he knew of a gentleman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, named Art Harbert, who um, had a drum shop named Art's Drum Shop. So he said, why don't you contact him and see if he'll give you lessons? The only problem was from Lewisburg to Pittsburgh is around 225 miles. Whoa. So that, that's not good for doing daily that's or a hell, weekly That's lessons. a hell of a bike ride. Oh, it is. And, well, my parents, we met the gentleman and in uh, Pittsburgh, and he said, yes, he would do this. What I would have to do is I got on a bus in my hometown, a Greyhound bus, went to Pittsburgh, got a room at the YMCA, and went to his arts drum shop every day for a week. So I took lessons every day. I hung out, sold drums. I learned how to fix drums. I learned how to talk to drummers. And in those days, Josh, it was very popular with drum shops in big cities where traveling bands, the drummers would come in and hang out mm. and talk. And so I would get to meet some of the great drummers of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I get to meet the traveling drummers. I never met them at the time, but Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa used to hang out at the hmm. drum shop. So what I learned was how to play the drums, how to fix the drums, how to talk to drummers. I learned the business of playing drums. I'm curious, just to, sorry to interrupt you. I'm curious. You mentioned, um, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to, to speak with you, I spoke with Michael Rosen the other day and, you know, I've, I've spoken at length with Larry Snyder, my, my undergrad teacher, and I'm fascinated by the story of what, you know, uh, I, I want to know what it was like when, when our, our art form, you know, our art form now, I think you can look at and call PASIC as an institution, right? Like the, it's now looked at as an organization that, that is a, is a thing. It wasn't always that way. It used to be just a ragtag group of 
people like yourself and friends who were like, let's get together and do things, you know, like it started off very small. And you mentioned the national association of rudimental drummers. And in my, I'm curious, my assumption is like, that was like one of the initial attempts at making an organization and and trying to, um, I don't want to say unionize, but like have a body that represents an art form. And I'm curious how far off base I am in that, or if there were other things earlier than the national association of rudimental drummers that made an attempt like that. But that seems to me to be a, like a real focal point for a lot of folks from your generation of like, Oh, these are people trying to organize thoughts around what it is I'm doing. Yes, that was 1933 when, um, when the National Association Association of Rudimental Drummers was organized, and it was because a lot of sloppy teaching. Well, just said it was a ragtail group. We just did what we could do with what facilities we could find, and I found a house painter who knew how to hold the drumsticks mm-hmm. and how to put a skinhead on a flash hoop. And that's that's how our st- I started. But, but what it did for me, Josh, was not only teach me how to play the drums, but it taught me how to talk to musicians, how mm. to be a musician. It taught me the business of it. You can a lot of people can play instruments well, but don't know how to talk to people. But um, this was something that really helped me, and I'm I'm very happy because when I finally left. Uh, high school, uh, I um, I went in to the Eastman School not knowing how to play a whole, whole lot of instruments. I was aware of a lot of things that a lot of people today don't know when you go in because all they into a college, they don't really know the business. And I teach a history of percussion class mm-hmm. now at Eastman as an emeritus professor, and I say, how many of you know what the National Association of Rudimental Drummers is all about? And not many people raise their hands yeah. because they just never heard of it. Well, I think, but, you know, just to, just to be honest, I think I would I would probably raise my hand halfway and say, I know of it, but I don't know much about it. You know, like, and I think that's a generational thing, too. I mean, there's I know more about, you know, the the Pan Trimbago organization in Trinidad that represents steel drummers than I do a than I do about the National Association of Rudimental Drummers, you know, and I think that's just, it speaks a little bit now to the, the wide diversity in our field, but initially that was the place. But, that's where you went to find out information about the Lesson 25 and the Flamacue yeah. and all those other things. Well, what I wanted, what I did during high school was play drum set. I started playing in bars when I was 13 years old. Whoa. There were no rules back in those days. And you turned well, out just drink. fine. Look at you. All, we're all worried about kids these days. And you were hanging out in bars and, at 13 and getting on Greyhound yeah. buses for 200 and some odd miles. <laughs> yes. And I'd stay for a week. So I'd have a lesson for a whole week. And then I'd come back and practice for half a year. And then I'd go back and mm-hmm. take another lesson. But what I was learning was all the stuff that Art was, was teaching me so that this was a way now I played, as I said, in 13, I was playing in bars. I wanted to be a drum set player. Mm-hmm. I wanted to play with Count Basie, Duke Ellington, all the big bands, Harry James and so on. But I was playing almost every weekend in the Moose Clubs, the Elks Clubs, the American Legions. And then I spent uh, Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, is not too far away from State College, Pennsylvania. 
where Penn State is located. So the band I played in, Les Michener, big band, we would go on weekends and play uh, like a one-nighter and get home at three in the morning, it was about 60 miles away. So we would go there. I was earning money. Now, Les Michener, this is something not many people know. And I'm not sure I can pull this off right here, but <laughs> go for it. He he had Les Michener had a wealthy aunt, and at the time, featuring jazz concerts was something that was done. At age 15, I played with Coleman Hawkins. Now Coleman Hawkins may not mean much to you, mm-hmm. but he was the premier saxophone player playing the tune Body and Soul. He was known for that. I have something, I don't know if I can, if you can see this. Oh, yeah. Yep. But can you see everything it says on there? Uh, move it to your left a little bit. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, perfect. Great. Okay. That 1948, was- wow. Yeah, I don't. I don't and mean I to be so astonished as, by the dates. Like I, 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 you know, I'm. I don't want you to feel like I'm astonished by your age. I just, I really love learning about those that time, you know, and and seeing that, you know, stuff is just way messier. Well, than, that you know, folks, won't you <laughs> that believe? was the time I was known as Johnny Beck. <laughs> uh, what the drummer sensation? That's what they called me. Wow, look at you, thirteen year old drummer sensation. <laughs> And and the band I played in, I don't. This is the other side of the program. The Bucknellians was Les Mitch, Les Michner and the Bucknellians. Nice. So that's how I got through as a young teenager. I had no social problems at the time but with dating and doing that sort of thing because I was playing weekends. I was always sitting in bars behind a drum set mm-hmm. and and practicing and going to the state. Uh, Competitions, you know, each state has their own musical organization that features soloists at a certain time right. in the spring. And so I was playing snare drum solos, rudimental solos. That's how I got my education. I never really, when I went to Eastman, I had played very little timpani hmm. and practically no marimba. Somewhere along the line, this is another thing that happened. Bucknell University always had proms, and the proms would have big bands, Stan Kenton, Les Brown, mm-hmm. that that sort of thing. So I would go and hang out in the, in the corner somewhere and watch the big band, watch the drummers, talk to them. Even some, once in a while, they'd let me sit in and play a tune with them. So I was uh, that was my whole education prior to me going to Eastman in 1951. Oh, I think I was, just to stop you for a second. Um, I mean, I, I think you mentioned a few things earlier. I mean, I, when I, when I think of, of places that I cut my teeth in as a, just as a, as a young student, like le- my, where a lot of my education came from, it's like, yes, I went to Yale. I went to university of Akron, you know, but it's the small clubs in New York for me, where is really where the rubber met the road. And I learned of like, Oh, that's actually you know, what works in the practice room doesn't work here. And, you know, all of those, you know, those life lessons. And for you, you mentioned the Elks and the American Legion. And like, those were sort of, if I'm not mistaken, more like veteran based 
clubs where you could like my grandfather was a member of the VFW and we would go every Friday night and have steak, big steak dinners and everybody's gambling and yelling and hooting and hollering and drinking. And it was like, (laughs) you know, and I'm nine years old there with my grandpa and my grandma. He's he's throwing steaks across the room and everybody's yelling and there's a band playing and everybody's smoking. And those for me are like some of the most memorable childhood things I have of just like sitting there. I was in charge of running numbers for my grandmother back and forth from the person who was selling the numbers to people like you could bet a couple bucks like I was the one that uh-huh. was, I was in charge of running those numbers back and forth and you know for yeah. you as a 13 year old kid or 10 year old kid you're in those clubs but you're playing um, and and I don't know how much that inv- I mean does that do, do the Elks and the American Legion do they still function like that now um, in 2020 in terms of the way they function then do they still serve that same societal purpose I don't think so mm. no those clubs that would no, in those days, weekends were for people to go dancing, drinking, smoking, mm-hmm. whatever, mm-hmm. hanging out, and bands played. Uh, when I went to Eastman, I uh, did the same routine. Every weekend, I was playing with a band mm-hmm. somewhere. Now, all of that has dried up. None of that type of thing goes along anymore. Now, you've got some rock clubs and things like that, but yeah. it, it's much different now, but you mentioned the smoking, the drinking, the yelling. I have so many funny stories that I remember as a kid between age 13, 14, 15, 16, about playing in clubs and dealing with secondhand comedians because the circuit then, the good comedians were in Las Vegas and so on, but the, the, the has-beens were in the Oaks and the Eagles in Lewisburg. <laughs> <laughs> and they were not... They were not very good, and, but I did learn one thing. Usually, they would come in the day they're going to play. You were given the music of their routine, the dancers, the singers. All the dancers said, drummer, catch my bumps. Don't worry, baby, I'll catch your bumps. You just do them for me. And so uh, <laughs> and so the uh, uh, we would have a read-through, an intermission, before they come out and they'd be handed this music. I don't know if you've ever seen those books about how it was playing in clubs. There were certain books. Roy, Roy Burns wrote a book. I mean, even Sandy Feldstein about mm. playing in clubs where you have arrows. You could follow this arrow until someone says help. And then, then go back to another spot in the mm. music where you have to do something else. Yeah. It was a, a type of education where almost, um, you by the seat of the pants, and hopefully you made it through without embarrassing anyone. But I, I have some funny stories. I won't go into them now. That would take too long. Well, I'm curious. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious for you. I mean, I, I don't want to jump a bunch of steps here, but um, when you were talking, as you were talking about your the sort of diversity of the folks that were coming across your field of vision as a young kid. Um, and as a musician, you know, from comedians to musicians to veterans, you know, that you were hanging out with that, you know, in, you know, in 1948, who might have just come back from the war, like, you know, you're just hanging around with a bunch of different people. And I'm curious, did that sort of approach early on sort of imprint on you the way that you then dealt with your diverse crew of students that were then coming across your path at Eastman? You know, you had 50 some odd years of totally different people coming across your path. And the one thing I know about people who studied with you is they they say that you always left the door open wide enough that folks could grab on to the things they wanted to grab on. Like I feel like you gave folks enough freedom. And I'm curious if that if any of that came from your your 13-year-old freedom, you know. 
Yeah, pro- yeah, just probably uh, because I do believe that everyone is an individual. To clone someone takes away all the individuality that that person has, and they are left with only a skeleton of what they really are. So my feeling for any individual musician is you teach them what you know, they try what you teach them. If it works, they use it. If not, we keep finding something until we find something that works for them. So freedom to me is is very important. Self-instruction is also very important. You need someone to guide you, but until you know what you can do as a player, you're not going to be that great a player. You'll never be yeah. your full potential. There's a part of me that wishes there was a, like, you know, if, if John Beck could start the Eastman School over again, like maybe the freshman and sophomore years of study would just be a whole bunch of clubs that you just make people go hang out in. <laughs> And then once you get through, like, if you survive those first two years, then come talk to me. Then we can figure out what you want to do, you know. There was one time, uh, uh, the Progressive Arts Society, which, of course, you know all about, it's like the NARD, National yeah. Association of Rudimental Drummers. Um, there, there, there was a philosophy going along at the time in the early 60s when the Progressive Arts Society finally was organized that we should have a set of rules for, like you said, freshmen. They have to learn to play this. Mm-hmm. Sophomores have to learn to play that. Juniors have to learn to play that. And so no, I never followed that. I never believed in it. Mm-hmm. I never advocated it. It could be in my class at, at the Eastman School, a freshman could be studying something that a senior is also studying. Mm-hmm. There was no class that this is for this year and so on i let every individual do what they wanted to do uh i when they came in to study i could tell what they wanted to do and if that was good i'm not going to mess around with it i want to teach them the things that they didn't know how Mm -hmm. to do so well and then when they put all that together they become an individual player and until the player learns what they can do I don't think they'll reach a full potential. Well, I think that's that's a that's a conversation that you know I know we're going to do another podcast with Jason um, hopefully next week. And one of the things he's always talked about is like he, he was very heavily influenced by that approach. And I I'm just very curious to hear hear I would like to hear more about that approach in general in terms of how you how you dealt with that approach over the course of you know things change over 50 years. Like things aren't always you can't deal with students in year one, the way you deal with them in year 50 or whatever. And I'm curious to dig into that more, but I'm, I want to back up a little bit to where you decided, like, when did you decide that music was a career you wanted to do? Like what were during a time post-World War II, when there was a lot of turmoil in the economy, people were like, you know, factories were being, were turned over to make tanks. Like, and then you all of a sudden are like, no, 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 no. I don't want to do industry. I want to do music. Like, was that a weird thing to say out loud then? Like, what was the reaction you got from your, your friends, your, 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 your mom and dad's friends? Like, did they think you were absolutely crazy? It's a normal thing to say now because there's an industry that you can, no matter how small it is, there's, there, there are jobs now. And I'm, I'm curious after World War II when, like, people were coming back and talking about what happened. You're like, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I want to play Flamacues. <laughs> yeah. what, what was that like? 
I wanted to be a paradiddle Joe, that sort of thing. <laughs> yes, my parents, uh, well, my father was a businessman. Hmm. And uh, actually, he had a uh, an amusement business. They had pinball machines, music machines, cigarette wow. machines, wow. shuffleboard. That was his business. Uh, I have a brother younger and a sister younger. I'm the oldest of three. And I told my father once, I said, Dad, I really don't have any interest in your business. I was, I was, I played sports. I played for uh, junior high school uh, basketball, but quite in, uh, obviously I was out playing jobs until two, three in the morning. And was I going to be a good basketball player the next day? No, I fell asleep on the bench sometimes. The coach would say, hey, Beck, do you want to sleep or do you want to play basketball? Mm-hmm. So I wasn't really a good uh, sportsman. I played in the band for every football game, but I didn't play football or baseball. Mm-hmm. My brother took the sports. He actually was a catcher for the Detroit um, uh, baseball team. Uh, a minor team. So mm-hmm. he took care of that. And I did the, the music. And I think almost to 100% people were telling my parents, don't let him be a musician. All they do is smoke, drink, and do drugs. And he's <laughs> not going, he should be a lawyer or some professional like that. I've, I don't I know. Said, the more we know about lawyers, I think a lot of them smoke and drink and do drugs too. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably you're probably right. So they they were trying to discourage me or my parents from letting me do this. But I had a band director, and his name was Robert Beckman. Beckman, I don't know where we got the man part, but I was Beck. Any case, hmm. he was a smart man, and he told me once he encouraged my parents to let me continue in music. And so Bob Beckman, the band director, said to me, if you want to be, if you want to go into music, go to the Eastman School of Music and learn how to do this. And I followed his uh, suggestion and went to the Eastman School. But I learned a lot, you know, back in those days, Josh, back going back to the 20s, 30s, drummers didn't really study that much they learn by listening to each other mm-hmm. and by trying this and trying that and it wasn't until maybe um, in the late 40s early 50s that we were with the NARD and percussive arts society seriousness started to show its its itself in teaching percussion how to play and so the rest were just listening that's mm-hmm. why improvisation for drummers is easy. It's not so easy for a violinist to improvise, mm-hmm. but a drummer, hey, that's part of our thing. Yeah, I remember and right I mean, now talking to the Nexus go ahead folks. On to, Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, as I get older now in my 87th year, I don't learn new pieces to play. I just improvise. There's so much going on in my head now. I've done concerts, but I've improvised the whole concert. I had a plan, but I would take a certain instrument and and the improvisation I think is very it's a lot of fun and it also relieves all the um, 
the nervous part because you can't get nervous if you don't know what you're going to do. So you just go out and you do it. Yeah. And so I said, well, I can't say, well, I missed that note. Well, who cares? That, yeah. You got to get better. I mean, it's a skill. Improvisation is a skill just like anything else you have to get, you get better yeah. at. You get better at getting better yeah. at it. And uh, you're talking to the Nexus folks, talking with Russ Hartenberger. He mentions a lot, like a lot of their initial concerts were improv based. And A, because oh, yeah. they liked it, but B, there just wasn't rep. I mean, there was a little bit. You know, drumming came in the mix later for a lot of folks in the, you know, in the 70s. But there wasn't, it's not like you could just go to Steve Weiss, pick out, you know, go to the percussion ensemble pages and find a grade six piece. Like that just was not a reality. And so if you wanted to fill a whole two hour concert, improvisation was the way to do it. Um, you know, ionization yeah. is great, but it's only six minutes, you know, like it's not going to fill a whole, <laughs> a whole show for you, you know? Right. I just pl- played a Bill Kahn put together a Nexus improvisation concert at Eastman mm-hmm. as part of the fringe festival that's held here. And then he, he, Nexus was there and a couple other, my, myself and uh, several other people, and we just improvised for a whole hour, and it was great. The people loved it. They thought it was great. Yeah, you got to think. It does make you think. Well, can you talk a little bit about the sort of um, in when you when you got into st- school at the Eastman School of Music? Um, what was the sort of pedagogy like? What I mean, what was the thing? What was the gauntlet you were run through as a freshman? I mean, was there a was there a, um, a rubric that you had to work your way through? Was there you know, what was it like as a freshman? You walk in the door. <laughs> what was your first lesson like? Uh, let me go back to my audition. Oh, yeah, please. Because my audition consisted of a rudimental snare drum solo, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit of piano, and that was it. I never played snare i never played timpani or marimba in fact the audition was for a theory teacher mm. that's how i could in. if i could never get into the eastman school of music even i mean I, at that time or now let's put it this way i could not get into the eastman school of music based on what i played mm. i didn't know enough yeah so my first lesson i didn't meet my teacher at eastman for for about three weeks after I was there as a freshman. Mm. And um, we got to know each other. And he was a great man. His name was William Street. And he played timpani in the symphony. And he um, also uh, taught at the Eastman School. And Howard Hansen hired him. And um, we just, he, he sort of, showed me how to hold the timpani mallets, how to play, how to get sound, how to listen to fourths and fifths. Marimba was uh, mostly string music because there wasn't a whole lot of music written for marimba back in those days. Yeah. There was no no books. So we played a lot of string music. And his main thing, the main thing I got, two, two things from, from Bill Street was sound. To get a good sound, how to strike the instrument and produce a good quality sound. Mm. And the other thing was self-instruction and freedom, like we talked about mm. a little earlier. He led us freedom. He wasn't a taskmaster in saying, 
well, we had to do this or this or this. He would just keep us going, thinking about quality sound and how to get, how to lift the mallet off the instrument the sound. And I now, with the rock roll, it's easy to say what I'm going to say, that like timpani playing goes and marimba playing, anything that with quality goes up to the ceiling and rock and roll goes to the floor. So when you play a note, bam, and that's rock, it's going to the floor. But if you play a nice note on, say, a symphony or something like that, you have to pull that note out of the drum to the ceiling. Mm. That's the way he was showing us and how to play and also how to be relaxed. You've got to relax. He said, as soon as you feel tension, back off, slow it up, mm-hmm. and try to play relaxed with a good sound. What was the percussion ensemble? Or let me ask, was there a percussion ensemble sort of curriculum when you when you got into school? What was that? What was the sort of development of that like? There was no percussion ensemble. Gordon Peters was at Eastman at the time with mm-hmm. me. And of course, Gordon had the influence of Claire Omar Musser and all, all that sort of thing. No, there was nothing. Josh, we just played trying to get good sound, quality sound, relax. And uh, we had books that we read from. And he also uh, went from... From there, we just played the orchestra and the band. There was no percussion ensemble or marimba ensemble. Gordon Peters really started the marimba ensemble mm-hmm. in the uh, about 50, 53, 54, somewhere like that. Mm-hmm. But there was no percussion ensemble. And the percussion ensemble didn't start at Eastman in any interested in degree until the 19 see I got out of the band in 59 when I came back uh, Gordon left went to Chicago and I went to Eastman I got a whole story about that too but in any case um, I I started the percussion ensemble as a accredited course mm-hmm. up until then we would get together and play with the with each other, but there was no music. So there was no percussion ensemble at Eastman until I would guess 1960. Mm. That may be close. It could have been 59, 60s. I'm sure Gordon did a few things also. Well, I was in the Marine Band mm-hmm. from 1955 to 59. Gordon was at was Eastman getting his degree and uh, I'm sure he had some kind of percussion ensemble in mind, but there was nothing official. So when did you join the Marine Band? You, you, is this after you graduated from Eastman? Yes. Uh, I joined the Marine Band May 19th, 1955. And what was the, the reason story, for, what was the reason for joining the Marine Band? There was a draft. I was 18, I was healthy, and I was going to have to go in the Army. Let me tell you a story, if there's time. Please, yeah. About the Eastern School Percussion Ensemble, Percussion Department. In 19, my predecessor, William Street, retired in 1968. He was at the Eastern School 
for uh, uh, 40 years. In 1935, the first percussion graduate of the Eastman School of Music, his name was Oliver Zinsmeister, hmm. graduated in 1935 and went into the United States Marine Band and playing along with Charles Owens. Mm-hmm. So Charlie Owen and Ali Zinsmeister became the, the, the two main players of the Marine Band in that period of time, mm. 40 years. And then uh, after, well, they went in, Ali went into the Marine Band in 1935. In 1955, when I graduated from Eastman School, Oliver Zinsmeister was retiring from the Marine Band because it was a 20-year hitch, 20-year commitment. Mm -hmm. And there was an opening then. So I took Oliver Zinsmeister's place in the Marine Band because it was my time now in 55 to take his place. And I went in and stayed in the band for four years and got out in 1959. And in that time is when I came back to Eastman to start teaching and playing in the Rochester Philharmonic. So it was 35 to 55, 55 to 59, and then 60. 59 to 2008, when I retired, I was the teacher there at Eastman. Mm. So that's the vintage from Bill Street to Oliver Zinsmeister to me to now Michael Burrett. It's amazing to me how much of our, of, you know, if you look at the, you know, the, the symphony orchestra from the violin to the, to the timpani, like how much of our particular path as drummers, um, like if you took the military, military conflicts out of the world altogether. I'm like, it's, it's a sad thing to say, but I don't know that we would be here. Like, it's like the weird unintended consequence of there being weird, a horrible global conflict is that we, we have to put people in a military. But then part of that is that there's this weird drumming tradition that, that shot out of it all the way back from the civil war, all the way through now. And it's, it's, it's not lost on me that, you know, it, it would be disingenuous of me to say that the military did not have a humongous influence on the development of our craft. Am I am I am I off base in making that sort of general statement? No, you're absolutely right. Because a drum, the snare drum, in those days you mentioned the Civil War, the Revolutionary War, and the the whole Ottoman Empire, where uh, bass drum symbols that influenced Beethoven, Mozart, that mm-hmm. type of thing. So the drum was used in all of those different organizations. So the development of the drum had a, and, and war or military had a great influence. They were sort of walked side by side to each other. And each, each different event or war or whatever you might call it, produced different requirements for the drum. Mm. When the bugle came in, in like the end of the uh, uh, the Second World War, the Civil War, Revolutionary War, the drum was a big deal. But when Second World War came along, the uh, 
drum sort of took a backseat to the bugle. Because now instead of the drum waking up the soldiers, the bugle woke up the soldiers. Mm. So it was said that they had a great deal of influence, the size of the drum. The drums during the Revolutionary War were deep, 18 inches deep. And they were deep because the soldiers took their routine, recharge, whatever it was that the signal came from the drum, but it had to be heard. And mm-hmm. snares were put on those drums. In the early days, there were no snares, mm-hmm. but then the drums started to sound like the cannons. So they put snares on so that they could hear the, the difference. And the size of the drum when in the Civil War was much smaller than the Revolutionary War because there it was a whole different concept of fighting and so on. So yes, the drum had a great deal of influence, or I should say war had a great deal of influence on the drum. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to me. I'm I'm curious, like what was it that what did you learn being in the military as a drummer that you like when you know you get out of school and then you again you go back into the you know uh, the real world for you know if if you're looking at the club, your your club days as a thirteen year old and being in the military as being sort of these bookends to this time when you were in the, the test tube of school, what did you learn that you in the military that you didn't learn in school in terms of like being a better drummer? Oh, there was, we were playing every day. Every day we had rehearsals, we played concerts. We also did tours, nine-week tours, where um, we would play for nine weeks, two concerts a day, seven days a week, no days off. Every day, a new day, a new town, and there were no bathrooms on the bus. So... (laughs) I love that you threw so that in I, at the end. <laughs> like that's as important detail as, as everything else. <laughs> and there was a lot of beer drinking going on. So you can see the problem those guys were So what did I learn? I learned how to be a musician and handle all the problems and all the excitement and understanding of being a musician and getting along with others, because when you travel nine weeks on a bus with the same guys all the time, you had to get along. It was it taught me the business. Now, what did it learn? It it it, it learned. Um, I played marimba solos, two of those tours. Mm. So I was playing a solo every day for nine weeks, two two of the years. It, it taught me how to be a musician, how to feel and think and get along with others. Musically, it also showed me different styles of playing because the band in that, those days did a lot of transcriptions. So we were playing the same percussion parts as maybe a lot of the classical pieces that we played. Um, I, I guess it, it just gave me the feeling that I like this business I want to be a musician. I enjoy it. I like to play music with others for others. That was a great way for me to earn a living. And then when I finally got the job at Eastman, I looked further ahead and I could say, hey, this is my life. Hmm. The band I had to join or I had to go on the service. So at the time there were 15 
uh, Eastman students in the United States Marine Band at that time, mm-hmm. 1951 to 55, because we all had the draft. We were all faced with that. But it was fun. I got to know a lot of people, hang out with a lot of people, have a good time, play uh, concerts every day. We're uh, sometimes on showed me how to play when maybe I didn't have much sleep, but I still could play. And playing a solo every day for nine weeks. The tour sort of looked like the stock market does sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's the tour started in in one day and then it would get more and more exciting and the curve would go way up. Then you'd hit a plateau maybe uh, about the fourth or fifth week out. And the plateau would stay there for a while. And then you started going down. You are getting bored with all this. Mm-hmm. And then in the last week, that would go up again because you knew the tour was going to be over. And uh, it just gave me chops, really. Mm-hmm. I, I called them tour chops because when you come back after nine weeks <laughs> of playing every day, you develop my strong Wrong well, you get, you get, I mean, this is the thing. I mean, I, I'm only 40 and I've only been in so percussion. This is coming up on my 16th year. And there are things in my 16th year now with so that I'm like, oh man, this is so easy. This thing is now so easy. But 16 years ago, it felt like I was bench pressing 300 pounds, you know, and it's like running. Yeah. It's like anything else. You just get, you get, as you get more at bats, you get better at hitting home runs. You know, Mark now steroids helped Mark McGuire too, but he still had to get better. He had to, steroids don't help you put the bat on the ball, you know, like, and he just did that thousands of times. You know, you look at Michael Jordan and you're like, oh, he's a genius. No, he shot 40,000 free throws. That's why he's really good. You know, he played a game with the flu or with food poisoning that's why he's good. It's because he, he knew how to do it, you know? And I'm, and as you're talking about your, your experience as a 13 year old in the Marine band, like what I hear is at bats, I hear like, I'm sure they weren't all amazing gigs. I'm sure you walked out there and fell on your yeah. face a few times. I'm guessing if you're a human being like I yeah. am, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there were, there were those days in there. Yes. And I think it's, I just think it's something that like, and I'm, I'm, I want to ask you this question, even though I'm sort of I'm giving you the answer. I, I'm, I kind of feel like I want to hear, but so I'm, I'm putting that out there. But so, so but I want to hear honestly, like, what do you feel is something that students are missing that you feel like you have to keep saying over and over again? It, it, for me, I, it's that concept of like, you're not going to get this today. Like you need to, why don't you trust me that you're not going to have a snare, good snare drum roll by tomorrow? Like, it's not possible. Just trust me. It's going to take years. You're not going to be an amazing steel drummer overnight. And in fact, that's not my goal. If it was, that would be wrong of me. My goal is to get you to learn how to get better at something. And I'm curious for you, like, what was the thing after 50 years that you felt like, oh, my God, if I could just put this on a record and have it playing nonstop, I could move on with my life as a teacher? (laughs) Well, if I decided that's what I wanted to do, then there'd be no incentive for me to continue to do to play i still practice every day mm-hmm. in fact josh i practiced a half an hour before i did this little interview with you you were making me feel pack. horrible about myself i i drank <laughs> coffee and checked my email like a loser <laughs> well at my age at 87 the muscles don't act like they used mm. to at 27 yeah. so my goal is self uh in, in 
self-preservation. I guess that's mm-hmm. one way. I want to keep these muscles going as long as I can. I can't play snare drum now as fast as I used to, but I can still get a pretty good sound on the drum, mm-hmm. and that that's important. I don't have to play as fast as I used to anyway. So yeah. I just want to keep developing this thing that's gotten me through uh, my career, and I want to want to finish with the quality that I think I still have in me. Yeah. I've always looked at folks like yourself or Larry Snyder or, or Mike Rosen or, you know, uh, Steve Schick or uh, Evelyn Glenn. It doesn't matter who it is. And I don't have to always in, enjoy necessarily the p- piece of music they are playing or whatever. But I've always been jealous. I've been like, damn it. You know, John Beck, he may not have the hands that I have, but he knows what he's going to sound like before I do. And I like I don't always know how I'm going to sound before I make a sound, and you do, at least more than I do, you know. And it's because you you've just made that motion more, and that's the sort of like my weak, my soft underbelly of jealousy is just like ah, like why can't I have the the confidence of an eighty seven year old man, but the hands of a forty year old person? <laughs> like, uh, like maybe that's yeah. maybe that's the human dilemma that we're all struggling with, but. <laughs> Yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. Uh, I Hopefully, I know what it's going to sound like when I strike. But sometimes, Josh, it doesn't. And that's then that says to me, hey, look, I know it's in there. i got to find it again mm-hmm. and get it out. Well, that I, I think that's a lovely place to stop. Like, I, I just the optimism that you – like, the sort of self-awareness. You kept talking you, – you kept mentioning self-instruction. And like I hear that, and the words I hear in my head are self awareness. Like you are aware about yourself as a player. You know where your weaknesses are. You know where your lazy spots are. You know where like the moment you know that in twenty minutes you're going to give up because you just want to, not because you have a good reason. Like, and I think it's important for students to self police themselves a little bit and just hold themselves accountable. Yeah. And I and I really appreciate that. That's it. Feels to me like that's something you've really pushed from day one. And um, I'm really grateful for it. And I'm really grateful for this hour, uh, John, JB. It, it's, you know, I love talking to people I've never spoken to really at all. And, and I really, really have enjoyed this. And I look forward to um, the next chat with Jason sort of doing a part two to hear a lot more in depth about your time at Eastman and sort of your methodology in building that program. Um, and I want to hear more in depth about that. But before I let you go, um, Again, thank you. But do you? Is there any links or recommendations of something you would you would suggest to young listeners of this podcast to sort of like? I want to know more about just sort of what he's thinking and music he loves. What what would you recommend for folks to start with? Is there a website? Is there a link? Is there a a piece of yours that is like, man, this is this is the thing folks need to listen to? Well, I'm not sure. I have a specific piece that would help them get what what they're after but I think what the real important thing and I try to encourage young students to do this is to learn what they can do play like you think you can do Uh, and don't try to play like someone else don't compete you're playing say well I can play faster than you no that's silly but just play the way you want to play, the way it feels good. Many times uh, I would say to someone, uh, well, what's it feel like in 
you when you play this. I don't know what it feels like inside of mm. them. They know what it feels like. And, and if it says now, it sounds good. So whatever you're feeling inside of you at this moment is what you should try to do every day when you play. That's the important thing. Try to play like you can play. And once you feel confident, confident and comfortable with what you do, then that's to you. That becomes you and not someone else. That's, I think, very important. I think that's amazing advice to leave it on. And I think you should start a website, just John Beck, jb.com. And all it is is a quote that just says, play it the way that feels best to you. Like that's all it is on the website. I think, I think, I think that would be a lovely place for folks to check out. But, but JB, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. We'll be in touch about part two with Jason. Um, In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and healthy. You have something else you want to say? Well, yeah. Well, quote was what you just said about Steve Gadd. Mm. For I've known Steve since he's 14 years old. Mm-hmm. He lives in Rochester. I talked to him last week. In any case, I said, Steve, you practice every day. And he said, this is many years ago he said this. He said, well, yeah, I usually do this. I pick up the sticks, strike the drum, and if it feels good, I don't practice anymore. <laughs> and if it doesn't, and if it doesn't feel good, then I practice a little bit. So it's the feeling inside of you that's the important thing. That's amazing. Well, I appreciate that very much, John. And we'll uh, we'll be in touch about the next the next time. Please stay safe and, and be healthy, and um, and try to stay sane during this, this quarantine if you can. Okay. Okay. And and Josh, I really enjoyed speaking with you. You're easy to talk to. Been a lot of fun. Thanks well, for I really, your questions if, and getting me through. You're quite welcome. The feeling is mutual, and I look forward to doing it again. All right. Well, thank thanks, JB. Take care, okay. and we'll talk soon. All right. Bye. All right. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast was brought to you by Liquid Drum. Liquiddrum.com uh, down in Waco, Texas. Todd Meehan runs an amazing organization down there. Check them out. You won't regret it. Liquiddrum.com. And also Kyle Dunleavy Steel Pans. Uh, Dunleavypans.com. Kyle makes and builds all the drums I play personally with so percussion at NYU and at Princeton. Kyle's an amazing builder and tuner. Check him out. You won't regret it. Dunleavypans.com. Okay. Talk to you soon. Take it easy. Bye.